Would you stand for the reading of the word this morning? This reading comes from Acts chapter 6, the first seven verses. Hear God's word for us today. Now during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from amongst yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread. The number of disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem. And many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So we continue in our series. It's called The Blazing Center. It's a six-week study on the Holy Spirit, which means um, we are halfway through right now. It's been wonderful to learn from Pastor Simon over the past few weeks as he's introduced us to the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. I hope that that has done something in your heart, in your life, maybe in your language, in your prayers, as you've come to a new understanding of the Holy Spirit. We've talked, uh, just for a little refresher, we've talked about how to uh, have a conscious dependence of the Holy Spirit and how that's necessary for the Christian life. And then we talked about what it means to listen to the Spirit, what it means to learn from the Spirit. In the next couple weeks, we're going to talk about living life in the Spirit and being led by the Spirit. But today, I get to talk about developing leadership, how the Spirit develops leadership in and among us. So leadership. That word, that theme, that idea has had quite the resurgence over the last several decades. If you went back a generation or a generation and a half ago into a bookstore, I doubt there would be a a whole section on leadership like you might see now for whatever bookstores are left. But from best-selling books to mega church conferences, leadership conferences to corporate programs and seminars, leadership is something that is ever before us. It's the best leaders that get recognized with management positions and promotions and pay raises. They end up being CEOs and COOs, and they they model for us that if you can find the right leadership voice and the right balance and the right sort of tactics, you can be successful just like they are. Now, I, I don't know if it'll surprise you or not, but when we talk about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit develops leadership in us, we actually get quite a different model of what leadership looks like than what the, the, the mainstream culture would tell us leadership is. And I'm not, I'm not intending to downplay in any way the importance of leadership. I love leadership. If you're like me, you, you enjoy leadership books. I'm always reading a book on leadership, church leadership, uh, management principles, that kind of stuff. It's an important skill to hone. I think that anybody can be a leader. And there are particularly gifted leaders, and we need those people to really hone their gifts and skills and and use them to the glory of God for their fullest potential. 
But here's the thing. When we infuse the Holy Spirit into a conversation, the very, the very Spirit of God about leadership, it actually looks really different than the leadership models that we often see on, on TV, on the Internet, and so on. And, and our text today actually paints uh, a different picture than what we might see at a major leadership conference. First, let's make sure we understand what's happening in Acts chapter 6. First of all, what is the problem? What's the problem here in this text? Well, if you've been reading through the book of Acts with us, uh, with the booklet that we have, if you didn't get one of those, we actually ordered several more because we ran out. So they're out on a, on a table out there. You can feel free to grab those and read along with us. You'll be about two weeks behind, but you can either double up for the next couple weeks and catch up, or you can just you know, read well into November. That's fine, too. Um, but if you've been reading through the book of Acts, you might have noted in Acts chapter 4 that Luke describes the early church in a really magnificent, amazing way. Here is his description of the early church. All the believers were of one heart and mind, and there was nobody needy among them. One heart and one mind, and nobody had any needs. That's amazing, right? Well, think about the text I just read to you from, from Acts 6, our text for today. Already we see that that description has a threat to it, right? There's something wrong. And the problem is food distribution. Food distribution. A little background here. Uh, the Jews in Jerusalem for, for, for centuries had had a system to help needy widows. It was part of their law, okay? They had a food distribution system to help needy widows. And, and remember that the early church, they weren't separate from Jews. They were Jews who were followers of Jesus. If you would have asked any of those apostles, are you Jewish? They would say, of course I'm Jewish. And I follow Jesus, who is a Jewish Messiah. So, so they participated in this temple system of food distribution. Now, for Christian widows, followers of Christ, it stands to reason that access to this food might have been difficult already because Christians, followers of Jesus, were already marginalized. Some of them were already persecuted. And this text tells us that there's a group of Christian women who were probably already uh, marginalized, who were particularly needy, and that was Hellenistic widows. Hellenistic widows. Let me define Hellenistic for you. Hellenistic is Jews who are Greek-speaking and participate in Greek culture, okay? So these Hellenistic widows were from the Greek-speaking world all over the Mediterranean, all over the known world, and they would have come to Judea, and they didn't have family there to take care of them because they weren't from there, so they needed help. We actually know from first century documents that maybe, maybe some of you uh, are, are tucking money away for retirement or you're thinking about retirement. A first, a first century Jewish retirement plan was often when we're about to die, when we're old enough that we think we're going to die, we move to Jerusalem. Whether it's from Italy or Greece or, or Turkey or North Africa or wherever in the known world, you would go to Jerusalem as an older person to die because you wanted to be buried in the holy city. So you can imagine in Jerusalem that there were people from all over the world, elderly folks who didn't have family who needed help. Now, I don't think, as I read this text, that these Hellenistic Greek-speaking widows were intentionally being neglected. I don't think the apostles were going, we don't like them, so we're not going to give them food. I think what was happening is this. I, I think that the movement of Christianity, of, of, this, of this new way of Christ, was growing so exponentially, and, and it was so exciting, and it was so rapid, that stuff was slipping through the cracks. And here we see an example of that. So what's the solution? You might notice that the apostles, 
Those are the, the people who saw the resurrected Jesus, right? These are Judean Jews for the most part. They chose to not be offended by these Hellenistic disciples who they barely even know who were bringing complaints against them. They, they also didn't choose to over-spiritualize it and say something like, well, we want to feed you with the word of God, which is really all you need, right? Instead, what did they do? They got administrative. They got organized. They appointed seven men, seven men to oversee the food distribution and make sure that it was completely fair and equitable. You might notice as I read those seven names to you that they're all Greek names, which probably is a good indicator to us that they were all Hellenists. They were Hellenist disciples, which means, kind of cool, the apostles, Judean apostles basically said, you know these issues the best. You, you know what's going on with these widows the best, so, so we're going to appoint seven from your group to address this need because you know it best. You can speak that language, right? It's pretty good administration. So the apostles commissioned them for this role, and the text tells us that ministry continued, the church flourished, people came to faith, so they must have been successful in their food distribution task. Crisis averted. So in this short text, let's ask the question, what, is the, what, what, what are we supposed to learn about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit equips us for leadership? I want to offer five truths. You know that I do this quite a bit, truths in this text. They were true then, and they're true for us still today. Five of them. So track with me. First of all, truth number one. When we're following Jesus, there are always going to be threats to unity. You know, sometimes I think that if we feel like I'm, I'm doing the best I can in my own individual life to, to, to flee from sin and, and to make good choices and to be an upstanding person, and, and so are you, and, and then we come together as a church and and if we're all kind of doing our best, then things should go well for us, right? We should be blessed and we should be able to avoid these pitfalls because we're doing our best. But I think you know that that's not always the case. Sometimes we can be living a really upright life and there's still issues that we need to deal with. We can take comfort from the fact that the apostles who, these original apostles who were seeing phenomenal growth, the biggest growth probably in the history of the church, miracles are happening, spontaneous baptisms are happening, utterances of the Spirit are happening, and yet they have threats to their unity too. Problems were arising. I've been thinking about this in terms of technology. Um, I know that some of you have upgraded technology in your home in this, in this strange season that we're in, right? Well, we've had to upgrade church stuff a ton. We've got new computers and streaming boxes and cords and, and a million adapters and batteries all over the place. And, and because we're doing the live stream here and we've got classes upstairs, we're doing outdoor stuff. We, we've, we've invested a lot in technology. And guess what that's been able to, to, to allow us to do? We've been able to expand our ministry, right? Three live services, two live streams, five services in a weekend. And the technology allows us to be able to do that. That's a real gift. But I think you know that with every layer of technology that you add, it's an extra layer of things that can go wrong, right? And I think it's the same with these apostles. The, the movement was growing, and, and, and because it was growing, there were these layers of, of things that were coming in from all over the known world to this, to this new group of believers called followers of the way, followers of Christ. And that means that there were new threats to this community as well. 
We actually read about one of those threats to unity in the previous chapter, Acts chapter 5, the horrifying story of Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe some of you, if you're reading along, you're like, oh, Lars, you avoided preaching on Ananias and Sapphira. Way to go. Um, really difficult text. Actually, if you want to hear about that, Pastor Joy and Simon and I sat down this week and recorded uh, a conversation about that. It's on our podcast feed. You can listen to our pastor's conversation. But here we are in the next chapter, Acts 6, and here's another threat. And this threat at this time is the overlooked widows in the food distribution. Okay, so that's truth number one. Truth number two, it is good to deal with unity issues immediately and sensitively. Um, I've encountered some Christians who sincerely want to follow the Spirit, even in sort of a charismatic way. And, and that, can, that desire can lead them to be passive or even laissez-faire, the idea being um, as long as I'm sort of focusing on the Spirit and deep in prayer, that the Spirit's going to take care of all the, the issues and the, and the difficulties and the threats that come, uh, come my way. But you realize the apostles don't do this. They are trusting and leaning in the Spirit in a really significant way, but they are also super pragmatic. They administrate. They get organized. So I, I want you to know that following the Spirit and having a thoughtful plan are not mutually exclusive things. They could have been passive. They could have just said, we're not going to really deal with this issue. We're going to focus on, on preaching God's word and, and praying instead. But, in, but they understood the way in which if they didn't deal with this threat, that it could be really divisive. And so they came up with a clear plan and they executed it. Truth number three. It was true then. It's true now. Prayer, preaching, and administration are all spiritual gifts. You'll note that the apostles delegate their responsibilities, noting their call to preach and, and, and to prayer. But they also affirm the distribution of food, that ministry. So, so often we can create this, soul, this, this kind of holy separation between spiritual work and non-spiritual work. But this passage doesn't do that. If anything, I think the apostles realize the various giftings within the church and they delegate responsibilities so that all of the important ministry, all of it, can happen. Because really, what good is, is preaching and praying if you have basic needs that are not being met? If you have people who are going hungry in your midst, that's not a very good witness, is it? So too, if, if, if you're just feeding people's physical needs, but you're never going to the spiritual depth of what we all need, that's not a great witness either. So the apostles appointed these seven men to do important spiritual work in, by administrating. Which brings me to truth number four. The criteria for leadership in a spiritual sense is important and it's really, really well defined in this passage. I don't know if you noted it or not, but there are three criteria that are noted in this text for the selection of these officers of food distribution. First of all, they needed to have a good reputation. Second, they needed to be full of wisdom. And third, they needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if we were to hire a pastor here, uh, or put, a, put out a call for that and make a job description, I think most of us would say those qualifications are, are pretty self-evident, right? They need, to, they need to have a good reputation among people. We need to have good references for them. They need to be wise and, and not foolish in how they live their lives. And we expect that they would be spiritually mature and, and growing and that evidence of the Spirit would be in their lives. Well, let me ask, if Hinsdale Covenant tomorrow said, we want to start a food pantry, would we have the same qualifications for the administrators of that program? I would hope so. 
I would hope so, because that ministry is important too. I often tell our council leadership, uh, remind them that they are spiritual leaders in this church, and that, that their own growth, their own lives, um, the, the way in which they're living their lives really does matter. It's crucially important. Anyone who is using their gifts in the church in service to God should be maintaining a good reputation, striving to do that, should be marked by wisdom, and should have evidence of the Spirit's filling in their lives. Last truth is that the Spirit is going to develop leadership for a multicultural church. I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that the Jerusalem church refused to let differences divide them. This was a church that, as far as we can tell, was pretty representative of their city. Different ethnicities, different cultures, different languages, different socioeconomic realities. All levels of society seem to be represented in this Jerusalem church, which appears to be a, sort of a microcosm of the city itself. And we know that the other megachurch of the day in Antioch was an incredibly diverse church, a melting pot of a church. So think about it this way. How easy would it have been for the apostles, these Judean apostles, when this issue came up to go, you know what would be a good solution? You're Hellenists. Why don't you go start your own church? First Hellenist Church of Jerusalem. That sounds pretty good, right? That's got a good ring to it. We can be friends. We can maybe even help you with that. And then you can like speak your own language. You can have your own sort of cultural moment together as Greek-speaking, Greek culture people. You, you know your widows. You can start your own food distribution program. And, and maybe we could help you if you need. But like, why don't you go do your own thing? That would have been easier, right? Would have been a lot less messy. But they didn't do that. They fought for unity within a diverse church. They integrated rather than segmented. And I think that's an incredible witness to the rest of the world. And, and, and really, that's us too. I mean, God has blessed us here in this church with, with a diversity, right? A diversity of ethnicity and race, of language, of tax bracket, of experience, of spiritual story, of age. But we're one church, and we endeavor to not let the differences that the world might see in us divide us. And if the Spirit is allowed to develop that leadership freely, we are going to grow more representative, more diverse. That's just how the Spirit works. So, those are the five truths. Everybody still with me? We're good? Okay. For those of you who may have dozed off, I tried to put this together into one sentence for you. A condensed truth from these five truths. The Holy Spirit takes us in all our diversity of culture and gifts and unifies us for mission in such a way that we are compelled to resist division of every sort. Now, as you look at that, you hear that, does that match the leadership development programs that the world presents to us? where some people are just leaders and some people just aren't, or where tips and tools and, and tactics will make somebody stand out above the rest, or where you can sort of chart your own path, your own vision, your own skill, your own resources by your own can-do attitude. That's not exactly what the Bible presents to us. And I hope in some ways that's refreshing to you. If I could illustrate for you, um, for my dad's 50th birthday years ago, he decided that he, want, he wanted me and my brothers, two boys, to join him on an adventure. 
he wanted to climb a mountain. He wanted to do that for his 50th birthday. He said, I don't know how many other birthdays I'm going to want to do this, so let's do this. So we did, uh, we chose to summit Mount Hood in Oregon um, at over 11,000 feet. It's a, it's a pretty serious hike. Uh, my brother and I trained for weeks leading up to this hike, uh, walking rigorously and hydrating copiously and swimming and, and running to get our lungs fit and ready for the summit. And here's how it, here's how it worked on Mount Hood. I know it's not this way on every summit, but th- here's how it worked on Mount Hood. We arrived on Mount Hood on a Thursday uh, in the morning, and we spent the morning and afternoon with, uh, with our guide. His name is Joe, Australian guy, super interesting guy. He had summited most of the great peaks in, in the world, and he was just a great teacher and he walked us through the gear, so spikes and crampons and, and ropes, etc. everything that we needed for our hike, he walked us through. He walked us through the food that we were going to need. Um, he walked us through the clothes that we were going to need. He walked us through the certain, certain mindset that we were going to need. He even taught us, here's how you put one foot in front of the other when you're tired, just to get up that mountain, right? He taught us how to fall properly. Any of you who have climbed, you know you, you have to fall a certain way. You, you, put that, you put that pick in, and then you lean into the mountain, and, and, and you brace. He taught us all the vernacular that we were going to need to be able to do this together. So at 3 p.m., we had a huge dinner, and then they uh, encouraged us to go and sleep uh, for as much as we could until midnight. At midnight, we would go to a bobcat, which would take us up to about 7,000 feet, and we would spend the rest of the night ascending. Um, if, we, if we left any later or we paced it too slow, the sun would be up too high in the sky and it would begin to melt that snow and, the, and the, the hike would become treacherous. But a surprise awaited us when we got in that bobcat at midnight. Um, Joe said, hey guys, this is Ross. There was another guy in the, in the bobcat. His name was Ross. He's like, this is Ross. He's from Ohio and he's going to join us. Um, Ross had not trained with us. Uh, we didn't know him. And while it was fine that he was with us, obviously he paid to have this experience, right? Uh, I was a little nervous, and we got more nervous as we reached one of these kind of canyon footbridges that you see like here. Um, There's a small footbridge at about uh, 9,500 feet where just a couple weeks earlier someone had died because it's sheer cliffs on either side, right? And and here's Ross in the back of our our group, and he is like fumbling around. He doesn't know anything about his gear. I even remember, if if I remember correctly, my dad um, went up to Joe and said like, should Ross really be here? Like, is this a good idea to have Ross with us? Um, and, and once we had gotten past that land bridge, uh, Joe kind of huddled us together and basically said, okay, guys, this is the toughest part of the climb. Now we're really going straight up. You don't really know me. None of us really know Ross. We don't really know each other, right? But that doesn't matter because we are now tied in together with a rope. So we put aside all of our differences. It doesn't matter where we come from. We have one goal. The goal's up there, and that's where we're headed. And I want all five of us to get up as high as we can, as safely as we can, There is no room for mistrust here. We are going to trust one another with our lives because we want to get to the top of that mountain. That's our goal. Pretty good speech, right? I was ready to run through a wall, right, after that. So we moved forward. The sun was out now. The the snow was getting uh, a little looser under our feet. It started to feel like we were walking on a snow cone. Um, And we we came to this very steep incline about, about 300 feet from the summit when I felt a tug below me and I heard my dad yell falling Ross was at the end of the chain and he had fallen um, and he had 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 lost lost his footing and had fallen and so we quickly dug in our spikes and our picks and we braced for that fall we barely even slipped because we knew what we were doing we had trained for it 
and the rope held us. And then Joe yelled from above, no blame, it's okay, there's no blame here. We're either going to all fall or we're all going to summit. That's what we're going to do. We're one unit. Full disclosure, we ended up a little short of the summit that day. It was too warm, too much snow melt, but it was a fantastic experience, and, and I got several great sermon illustrations out of it, so that's always worth it, right? But I bring this to you because I think this is how the Spirit develops leadership in us. The Spirit gives us a rope and ties us together and points us to the summit and says, we're going there together. I don't care about your differences. We are a unit with varied gifts, and we have a common goal, and we're going together. The Spirit unifies us together for a common goal. We pick one another up when we fall. We have no room for mistrust or division. division. And this flies in the face of so much of the leadership models that we are faced with. Because when we are being developed as leaders in the Spirit, there's no singular leaders. We are interconnected for mission. We are united for mission. And what's that mission? It's the exact same mission that was given to the early church, and we are still living into that, and that is to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to introduce people to Jesus Christ in such a way that they say, I want to follow Jesus too, and live their life to the glory of God. The Spirit unifies us for that mission. So that's what the Spirit does. What can we do? Do we have a part in this? Or is it just the Spirit that hands us a rope? Do we have a part in this? Well, here's what I think. I think that what we can do is we can make sure that we meet the same requirements that Stephen and the rest of the Hellenists did. A good reputation, a life full of wisdom, and being full of the Spirit. Those are like the the boots and the crampons and the helmets and the picks, all the stuff that you need to get you on the mountain so that the Spirit can put a rope in your hand and tie you in. So to close this morning, I just want to ask three quick questions. Do you have a good reputation? Man, I'm so excited that we have like high schoolers and junior hires and young adults here. This is fantastic because this is an awesome question for all of you too. Do you have a good reputation? Do people see you as someone who is kind and honest and fair and gracious? Do people trust your word? Do they respect the way that you live your life? If not, let me encourage you that we serve a God of redemption. We follow a man named Jesus who is overly fond of second chances over and over and over and over and over again. It's never too late to start living in a way that makes a positive impression on the people around you and speaks well of the Jesus that you claim to follow. Second question, do you exercise wisdom? Is that a word that people would use to describe you? Are the decisions that you make about your words and your actions and your effort and your time and your money and your future, are these decisions made on the solid footing of wisdom and prayer and good reason? Or are those things made off of emotions and mixed motives? Do you practice patience and self-control and forbearance? Or are you quick to anger and undiscerning? Let me tell you, wisdom is something that we can actually gain over time. But the way that we gain it is that we spend time intentionally with Jesus, with God's gracious presence, because God is the giver of all good gifts, including wisdom. And the last question, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? 
Pastor Simon's talked about this the last couple weeks. I'm not exactly sure how to define what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but, but one way to think about it is that the Spirit fills us, fills our lives in such a way with His very presence that it overflows onto the life of people around us. So that people look at us and they say, there is a spiritual power that that person is tapping into. I see the goodness of God, the very Spirit of God, leaking out of that person. Are you someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit? If your answer in that is, no, I don't really know what that is. I don't think I'm that kind of person. Let me tell you, you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. How? It's really quite simple. You ask for the filling of the Spirit again and again and again, and you listen to the Spirit, and you learn from the Spirit. So, do you want to be a leader that really has an impact not only on the world, but on the very kingdom of God? Well, then I'm not going to give you a, a, a book with 10 easy tips. I'm not going to give you a ticket to a big conference. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to do the work to qualify yourself so that the Spirit can rope you in and set you on a journey. The Spirit seeks to unify us so that we might be leaders in the kingdom of God. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord, would you unify us for mission? Would you help us to know that we are not singular leaders in your economy. Instead, we are co-laborers, co-leaders in the mission that you set before us. To love you with all our hearts and to invite all of those around us to love you as well, to follow you, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior, and to live their lives for your glory and our neighbor's good. Holy Spirit, would you rope us in? Would you help us to meet those qualifications that you set for those faithful seven? That we would be people with an increasingly wonderful reputation to those around us. That you would fill us with your wisdom and with your spirit so that we can be roped in together and be united for the mission that you call us to. And Lord, when we fall short, we thank you that you are a gracious God. That you love us. That you equip us. That you give us your grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Our lives are centered on you, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. Let's stand together.